I try and get connected. There we go. Wired for sound now. As we come to Mark chapter 11, I wanted for one Sunday to leave the pastoral epistles, actually for two, this Sunday and Easter Sunday. And I wanted us to focus on what many see as a day of rejoicing, Palm Sunday. We get caught up in the excitement of the crowd. We see people spontaneously in this story run and throw cloaks on the road as Jesus prepares to enter Jerusalem. They spontaneously run out and grab palm branches and lay it on the road before Jesus. And we think, how exciting. How wonderful that people honor Jesus in this way. But what we see as something that is celebratory and exciting, in reality, is tragic. Because what we find are people who wanted Jesus to be the Jesus they wanted him to be, not the Jesus that is. And you know, as we look in our own society, we see people doing the same thing. People love to talk about, well, I like to think of Jesus as, and then fill in the blank. Whatever their whims or their desires might be, that's who Jesus becomes to them. We live in an age of confusion where truth isn't based on what is revealed. Truth is based on whatever we want it to be, and then it becomes true for us. That is not truth. Truth is revealed by God. Truth is something that brings us to an understanding of who God is and what he has shared with us about himself. And that's what I want us to see as we come into Mark chapter 11 and this account that Mark gives us clearly about who Jesus is. There's a verse in the Gospel of John that talks about how people refuse to receive Jesus for who he is. Look at what John writes. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. What a description of how people received Jesus when he came into this world to offer himself to Israel as their Messiah but then suffered the rejection of men. What we want to find first as we look into this text together is this. People must respond to who Jesus is, not who they reinvent him to be. We begin this text by Mark sharing with us how Jesus presented himself as the promised one of God. And notice as we look at verses 1 through 6 how Mark frames this. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany 
on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell them, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. Well, they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied to a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. Now, what we find in this is the setup for Jesus to present himself to the people of Israel. What we find is, first of all, that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, and from Mark chapter 11 through the end of the book of Mark, It's all about Jesus in Jerusalem in preparation for the cross. It's a time where Jesus offers himself to Israel. It's a time where Jesus wraps up a three-year ministry where again and again and again Jesus has presented proof that he is the promised one of God, that he is the Messiah, that he had come to seek and to save those who were lost. It's an important time. And so here is Jesus finally coming to the place to where as he comes to Jerusalem, he prepares by going to the Mount of Olives. You know, the Mount of Olives is such a pivotal part of the story of God and Israel. As a matter of fact, when we look back in the Old Testament, you know what we find? We find in the book of Ezekiel that Israel had become hard-hearted that Israel had gone into a rejection of God, so much so that Ezekiel shares a vision that he has about Israel's relationship with God. And in that vision, he talks about the visible manifestation of God's glory. It's called the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. And first it's at the temple doors, then it's at the outside of the temple, then it's at the gates of Jerusalem, finally on the Mount of Olives, and there it departs. In fact, Ezekiel said this, the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. That would be the Mount of Olives. And from there it departed. The imagery there was that Israel had rejected God and God was departing from the nation Israel. But you know, the story doesn't end there. Jesus is at the Mount of Olives, ready to enter into Jerusalem. We know the story that within a week, Jesus would be crucified. He would be buried. He would raise again. For 40 days, he would minister to his disciples. But then we find at the beginning of the book of Acts that he would depart. And guess where he departs from? The Mount of Olives. Jesus is coming again. And when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom on earth, guess where his feet touch down? The Mount of Olives. So we see this beautiful statement here by Mark that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and I think it's by design that he mentions the Mount of Olives because it plays such a pivotal role in the people's acceptance of God and their rejection of God. 
And in short order, the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, would reject God. Now look at what else we find as we come to the second verse. Jesus sends two of his disciples to a village to get a colt and bring it to him. And he gives them special instructions about when someone asks you why you're taking the colt, tell them that Jesus has need of it. And what we find here is, again, the fulfillment of prophecy. You see, in the book of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah wrote this about the Messiah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As Jesus prepares to go into Jerusalem, this passage is in his mind, and it's a statement to those who would gather that this indeed is the promised one, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. He is fulfilling prophecy, but he is also making a clear statement to the people. I am the one who is promised. And you know what that did? That forced the people to make a decision. Will we receive Jesus as the promised one of God? Or will we reject him? Now, as we look at the story initially, it appears as though the people respond, and they respond well. It looks as though the people seeing Jesus coming, seated on this donkey, are thinking of this very passage. And they're ready to receive Jesus as the promised one. They're ready to receive Jesus as this Messiah that they had long awaited. Look at what we find as we progress into this text. We find that he's perceived by the people to be the promised one of God, but here's the problem. They had selective application because all they perceived the Messiah to be is a political deliverer. When we look in the Old Testament... We see promise after promise about a coming Messiah who would govern the world. We can understand why the people longed for a political deliverer because they were under the thumb of Rome. As a matter of fact, the children of Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years had been under one ruler or another. They were ready to be delivered. They were ready to experience a deliverer. But here's the problem. In the Old Testament, not only do we have promise after promise of a political deliverer, but we also have the promise of a Savior, a spiritual deliverer, who would deliver Israel from their sin, who would deliver Israel from the wrath of God because of their rejection of God. So while they remembered the parts about deliverer applying to the political needs, they forgot all about the parts of repentance and turning to him and humbling themselves before God and receiving this offer of Messiah as the spiritual deliverer. And you know, we can see this as the people respond. 
Look what we find in this text. Verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut from the fields. Now what's going on? Taking the cloaks and throwing it on the road was a way of honoring kings. It was a way of expressing royal dignity. It was something that was done in the Old Testament under King Yehu. And it signified respect. The taking of the branches was a way for them to express, yes, we even recognize you as Messiah. We recognize you as the promised one of God, and they took those branches and they laid it before him because of Psalm 118. Look at what this psalm shares with us. O Lord, save us. Now, that, as Dan pointed out, Hosanna. O Lord, save us. Grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. And he has made his light shine upon us. Now look at this. With bows in hand, join in the festival procession up to the horns of the altar. Do you catch that? They were responding to the 118th Psalm. They were recognizing him as God who saves us. But as they're crying out, Hosanna, God save us. They're not crying out, God, save us in the sense of save our souls. They're crying it out in the sense of save us from our captors. You see, these very same people, in just a few days, would also cry out something. Crucify him. What a change. What a transition. You see, what they didn't recognize is there's another part of that 118th Psalm that precedes this cry, O Lord, save us, grant us success. It's a prophecy about how Israel would respond to Jesus. In that same Psalm, the psalmist writes, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And the Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Isn't it tragic that they isolate on the deliverance part of the psalm, but they are actually fulfilling the rejection part of the psalm as they cry this out. The celebration of the people must have broken the Lord's heart because he could see into their hearts. And I don't picture a triumphant ride as Jesus goes into Jerusalem. I sense sadness. And I sense that because of what follows. Look at verse 11. And we find that Jesus was put off by a religious system that did not glorify God. Look at that 11th verse. 
Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, Jesus had been in the temple area again and again and again. So he didn't come in to survey. What we find is this. The leaders of Israel, the so-called spiritual leaders of Israel, did not respond to Jesus. The average people were looking for that political deliverer. But the leadership, those who were in the temple, the place that should have been looking for the Messiah, the place that should have recognized the spiritual need, it was a broken religious system. And it didn't recognize God when he came into their midst. So the picture is this. Jesus enters the temple area, and I believe with sadness, he looks around, and he sees what the temple area had become. Not a place to worship God, It had become a place of business, a place that supported a corrupt religious system that rejected the true Messiah and replaced God with rules and a man-made religion. Now, we're going to skip verses 12 through 14 and come back to them. But next, I want us to move on. And what we want to see is this. Jesus made some clear proclamations that the religious system that he came to was broken. Notice what we find as we come to verse 15. Jesus left Jerusalem, and he went out of the city for a time, But then he came back. And verse 12 picks it up. Or excuse me, verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves. And would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My father's house will be called a house of prayer for nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You know what Jesus was doing? He was making a statement. As he looked at the temple area, he saw a business Now, many of those who were money changers were doing this. As one who lived outside Jerusalem would come to worship, they needed to buy sacrifices. They couldn't take the sacrifice with them. So they provided a service for them. We will sell you animals to sacrifice. Of course, we have to make a profit. But here's the thing. We only accept money here in Jerusalem that is this particular kind of money. So you have to go to the money changer 
<coughs> and get your money exchanged for the money that we accept. And of course, the money changers have to make a profit. So it became a scam. And the people who were coming to worship were being abused by a system that paid off those selling the sacrifices and those exchanging the money. And so the place where they should come to worship, the place where they should be able to come and think about God, became exclusive. If you didn't have money, you didn't get anything as far as worship. And even if you did have money, you were cheated. Imagine how that made the Lord feel. Disgusting. This was a recent development, and it was a response of Jesus. But understand this. When we read here that Jesus cleansed the temple area, we get an image of Christ's zeal. And understand this. Some of those pictures of Jesus where you see how he is portrayed by an artist, the guy in that picture would not cleanse a temple area. Now you stop that. <laughs> you know? They'd look at him and say, what? Get out of here. You know? I mean, Jesus had an intimidating, imposing presence, authoritative presence. So I think the people responded as Jesus was cleansing the temple by saying, wow, we better watch it. This guy means business. But you know, there's something even more important going on. You see, when Jesus came in to cleanse the temple, he was fulfilling the purpose of God. And he reminds people of the purpose of God. What we find as we look into this text is he quotes from the Old Testament. Verse 17 says this. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Mark is sharing with us a passage of scripture that shares with the people their need to repent and to change and to turn back to God. But it's also fulfilling prophecy. You see, in Malachi, this event was prophesied. And Malachi says the following, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who will stand when he appears? For he will be like a launderer's fire or a launderer, or finer's fire or a launderer's soap. So Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, even in this, coming into the temple, cleansing it of its sin. We need to understand that Jesus' 
is not the Jesus we make him to be. He is the Jesus he revealed himself to be. He is the Jesus that scripture promised us. He is the fulfillment of all God said he would be. For the children of Israel, not just a political deliverer, but a spiritual deliverer. For us, he is our Savior, the one who transforms lives. So all of this takes place. How do we know that the religious system in Israel was so broken? The proof of the broken system is found by the response of the spiritual leaders of Israel. Look at verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Understand that as these people looked at prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that identified Jesus as Messiah, as these people saw proof after proof after proof that they couldn't explain that identified Jesus as the promised one of God, as they heard Jesus' teaching about himself, God himself speaking to man, They should have responded, but they rejected. And rather than receiving, they chose to search for a way to kill Jesus. In less than a week, they would succeed. But that was their rejection. Don't you think that if you saw proof that was beyond the shadow of a doubt that you would respond. We've often heard people say, hey, if I could just see a miracle, then I would believe in God. Well, guess what? They saw it. And they still rejected because they had their own agenda, their own desire. They had a broken religious system, but perpetuating the religious system was more important to them than turning to God. But then we come to the final part of this passage. I said moments ago, we're going to come back to verses 12 through 14. And we're also going to look at verse 20 as well. You see, Mark does something interesting in much of his writing. He sandwiches story in between an illustration. The illustration that he uses sometimes can seem random. We can look at it and say, well, what was the point of him telling that? But when you look at the bigger picture and you see how it fits in the unfolding of God's revelation, it becomes clear. In verses 12 through 14, he speaks of Jesus going by a fig tree to find food. Notice what it says. Verse 12, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. But when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. 
Now, when we go on down to verses 19 and 20, we get the rest of the story. When evening came, they went out of the city. And in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. What's going on? If we looked at this from a purely human standpoint, we would say, well, why is Jesus cursing a fig tree when it's not even the season for figs? Here's what we need to understand. Mark is making a point. The fig tree was Israel. It had the appearance of life. It had the appearance of being something that would be refreshing and good and wholesome. But in reality, it produced nothing. No fruit. It gave promise from a distance. But when you got up real close and looked at it, there was nothing there. And that had become the Israel of Jesus' day. As a people, they were not following God. They were not doing the things that God wanted them to do as his people. They had failed miserably. So just as the fig tree, not producing fruit, brought about the curse of God, so Israel, not producing fruit, was soon to experience rejection by God because they rejected God. Now, this would be for a time. God is not through with Israel yet, nor will he be. But for this time, they are set aside because of their rejection. And this is a picture, a visual aid, so that these disciples who are with Jesus, seeing this whole thing unfold, so they can grasp it. Understand that the problem of corruption was from the root up. I think it's significant in this text that when Mark talks about the withered fig tree, he makes a point in verse 20 to say this. In the morning, as they went along, They saw the fig tree withered, now notice this, from the roots. Understand this. When there's a tree that has a withered branch, you prune it. You find that withered branch and you cut it off. When a tree is withered from the roots, it's not time to reform the tree by pruning it. It's time to replace it. It's done. That was a statement about Israel for a time. The system was completely broken. Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. And sure enough, 70 AD, Titus, the Roman general, came through and destroyed the temple and much of Jerusalem. The very system that the corrupt religious leaders were trying to protect in a matter of just a few years would be eradicated. And they traded their souls for its protection. 
And you know, as I looked at that, I started thinking about how people respond to Jesus. We have the opportunity, a limited opportunity and window, to decide what we'll do with Jesus. Scripture presents him as our Savior, the one who can deliver us from our sin. But we have to make a decision. Will I trust what Jesus did on the cross to pay for my sin? Will I turn to him and count on him to be my Savior, my deliverer from sin, and to come into a relationship with the Father? Or... Will I put him on the back burner and say, someday maybe I'll think about Jesus? Or, I don't want Jesus as my Savior. I'm content with my life the way it is. So I'll reject him outright. Understand this. For the children of Israel... That window of receiving Jesus as the Messiah closed. And for us today, the window of receiving Jesus as our Savior will close the moment we breathe our last breath. And we don't know when that is. So our responsibility is this don't listen to people. Don't weigh things by your own personal preference. Understand that Jesus is who he revealed himself to be. The Messiah. The promised one of God. The Savior. Who gave himself on the cross to pay for our sin. Understand this. Your sin can be completely and totally forgiven by the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. He conquers sin and death and he offers himself to us as our Savior. But also understand this. We must come to him acknowledging our sin, willing to have him change our hearts and our lives to become more like him and with humility receive the free gift of salvation that God offers us. To me, the story of Palm Sunday is a story of warning about what can happen when we harden our hearts toward God. If I persist in hardening my heart toward God, I can find myself in the exact same position that the people of Israel in that day were, rejecting the wonderful offering of God for salvation. I don't know where you stand this morning as individuals. I know many, perhaps even most of us, have received Christ as our Savior. But perhaps there's one here this morning who's been putting that off, who has tried to go it on your own rather than going God's way into a relationship with the Father through Jesus. This morning, you have the opportunity to make that right. At the close of the service, I'll be at 
the back of the church. TJ and Dan will be around here as well. And if you have a question about where you stand in your relationship with God, it would be our joy to speak with you. We can also talk with you over the phone if you call and set up a time where we can meet. We would happily meet with any of you to discuss where you stand in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text, for the challenge that it is to us that we can become guilty of making you out to be someone we want you to be rather than who you revealed yourself to be. Guard us from that error. Help us, Lord, to receive Jesus as he is revealed in the scripture, the Savior who delivers us from sin, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to you, Father. Thank you for these promises. In Jesus' name, amen.